0: Good morning. morning. Uh, As some of you are aware, this is um, National Right to Life Sunday, where we recognize the value and the distinct uh, personhood of life in the womb. And uh, in a minute here, or in a few seconds, I want to introduce you to a special somebody. Um, In fact, uh, Darnell, why don't you go ahead and flip that image up? Isn't he handsome? Uh, this little boy's name is Miles, OK? And his last name is Tolopilo. Uh, it's the newest addition to our greater extended family. My, uh, he's also known, by the way, his, that's his given name, Miles, because his parents had to go to the West East Coast multiple times to adopt him, hence Miles. Um, <laughs> But his nickname is uh, Miles of Smiles uh, because he loves to do that. He's adorable. Um, the reason I bring him up, and you can go ahead and, and give us a second picture. This is my 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 handsome, beloved nephew, who's like a son, and his lovely wife, and their three kids just adopted Miles this this last June. So he's. Uh, the reason I bring him up is because statistically, Miles should never have been born. Um, He was conceived in a rape. And, uh, (laughs) maybe I should just quit right there, you know, and call it good. But, um, let me see, maybe we could turn that down a little bit. It's a little hot. Uh, We, um, I love this little boy, and he's already been such a blessing to her family, especially to his mom and dad and his uh, doting three siblings. And we look forward to seeing him grow up in a Christian home that's very loving. Um, We also look forward to the lives that this little boy will touch, uh, because each life touches so many. You know, the Jerusalem Talmud says, I'm going to put this down a little bit. Is that the issue? Um, the Jerusalem Talmud says that quote whoever saves a life it is considered as if he saved an entire world unquote and one of the things that that rabbinic proverb teaches us is that there each life touches countless others and he's already touched so many we're just looking forward to seeing what the Lord does with this little man uh, to his glory. And um, if I can point you in a direction that you guys can get involved in if you have a burden for the unborn, there's a wonderful ministry here in the valley called Birth Choice, uh, Birth Choice of Temecula. Uh, there, they can be found, they do so many things and so many ways to intervene, to make give the structure and the support that young women need Uh, to choose life. Um, And without ministries like that Miles would have never been born. But you can go and see them on their website www.birthchoicetemecula.com and I encourage you to go visit them. They have a facility right here and if you can please support them also with your finances. I had the opportunity of addressing birth choice Uh, In their annual breakfast for their staff and their supporters here in the valley this past Thursday. And I spoke to them about uh, two realities that are inseparably tied together in Scripture, and that is God's compassion and His forgiveness. And this has to be, these twin virtues have to be the rails on which we reach out to this world. Um to those young women and even young men who are dealing with an unplanned pregnancy. Uh, These are the virtues with which we must reach out to women who have been devastated by abortion and, and the guilt and the residual psychological and emotional damage that they have suffered because of that. And I might add, these are the twin rails that we must also reach out to those who are in the abortion industry especially as Christian pro-life people. We have to be known for this, not for our anger or vitriol. You know, it's, um, it's very important. I, as, by the way, when I say we must reach out to them with, with God's compassion and forgiveness, we need to have a clear understanding of what that means and own it, and listen, experience it. And as we own and experience that, we can reach these people. Because nothing else is the answer. I don't know if you all were watching some of the demonstrations yesterday um, that in many ways was just a pro-choice, mega countrywide, uh, uh, march. Um, we have people that we deeply love deeply loved, that are pro-choice, and they're also very verbal about it, very uh, aggressive about it. And, you know, when I look at that, their words, and when I look at uh, abortion, the issues of abortion, just on their merits logically, uh, I, I can get upset very easily, because abortion is driven by two things, economics and pragmatism. Economically, it's a 1.5 or more, I think that's pretty conservative, 1.5 billion dollar industry per year. So there's a lot, it's very lucrative medically. But it also is pragmatically driven because pregnancies are basically in the pro-choice movement are the byproduct of sex. And uh, when you have, want to have a child, you, you, you preserve it, but By and large, when you are in the pro-choice movement, you view life in the womb as an unnecessary consequence of sexual intercourse. And that messes with sexual freedom, and that's what people are really upset about. What we are saying is, life matters. But when you look at abortion logically like that, or you hear the vitriol, you read the signs, you know, keep your rosaries off my ovaries and stuff like that that's very shocking and very uh, provocative, it's hard, I don't know about you guys, but it's hard to emotionally love back, isn't it? So compassion and forgiveness has to be the way we reach out. I'll tell you, yesterday I was getting a little bit upset as I was watching these these news accounts, and the Lord reminded me of what I was gonna preach today. And this is the only solution, guys. This is the only solution to the anger and to the vitriol, and we have to, as Christians, to be known for our compassion and forgiveness. That has to be the hallmark. Jesus changes everything. And you and I will not be delivered from anger by just looking at the facts and looking at these margins. What delivers us, what changes us is the gospel, the reality of being compassionately forgiven by God. And I want to look at uh, a couple of verses today that display that better than any other verses in Scripture, I think. And uh, for those of you, I I spoke on Thursday. For those of you who have heard me speak from this passage before, hang in there. It's still the Word of God. Um, But I want to highlight two verses From an Old Testament chapter, Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7, that beautifully display God's amazing compassion and his amazing ability to pardon or to forgive. Now, before we get into that text, let me just give you a little bit of background. Chapters 40 through 66, this is the the largest portion of Isaiah, was written... uh, and it has been entitled by one commentator as the volume of comfort. And yet by another commentator as the volume of consolation. And the reason for that is is that the contents are full of compassionate overtures from God towards his people, Israel, particularly Judah, but also the dispersed of Israel. In fact, many of you who've listened to Handel's Messiah or you've uh, seen this perhaps written in, in, in greeting cards or whatever, you'll remember how this Section of the book of Isaiah opens up with the words, Comfort, O oh comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. It's a very tender part of the book of Isaiah. And when you consider the historical context in which these words were written, that content becomes all the more astonishing. Because this was written at the height of apostasy, corruption, debauchery, violence, in your face, sinfulness in all the history of Judah. The people were at their worst. And the guy that was leading the parade of evil, the guy that should have been raising the standard of the Torah for the people, was King Manasseh, the king of Judah himself. This guy was bad. And I don't mean bad as in good. Like, I'd like you know, the, I've heard somebody say this week that Aaron Rodgers is a bad man. What they meant by that is that he can get the the pass into the tightest little area. You know, just ask Jared Cook, you know, the tight end. I mean, that, that he's a bad man. That's good. But this guy was bad in the sense that George Thorogood said he was bad to the bone, right? Now, if you have your Bibles, I just want to give you a bit of background here. This is the, give you the biography of this king, Manasseh. Turn to 2 Kings 21, verses 1 through 16 give us a brief biography of this man's 55-year reign in Judah. And right after he's introduced to us in verse 1, this is the descriptive and summary sentence that we have given to us of his 55-year reign. It, it's, it reads very simply like this, 2 Kings 21-2. And he, Manasseh, did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. An abomination is just simply something that is abhorrent to God, that, if you will, to put it in our terms, that makes him sick. And what were these things that Manasseh did? Well, for one, he, uh, was, he rebuilt all the high places that his good father, good King Hezekiah, had torn down. He was a racial Jew, but he was a spiritual pagan. He reintroduced the cult of Assyro-Chaldean star worship to Judah, and he erected altars for this false religion in the courts of the Holy Temple, if you can imagine that. As if this were not bad enough, this multiple idolater adopted another particularly heinous religion, which involved the worship of Molech. And the reason why that was especially hideous, and it fits with today's Right to life, Sunday. The reason this was especially hideous is because this worship involved the sacrifice of little tiny children, babies, infants. In fact, that's the, uh, the meaning behind the opening phrase in verse 6, and he made his sons pass through the fire. That's an Old Testament euphemism, which means that he killed some of his own children, his own babies. This form of sacrificial worship was done according to 2 Kings 23.10 in the valley of the sons of Hinnom, Ben-Hinnom. More specifically, it was a place by the name of Topheth. And Topheth in Hebrew means drum. And some scholars believe that it is called drum. It was called drum because they had to beat the drums in order to drown out the screams of the children that were being murdered. It was just an open-air shrine. It was in the southern end of Jerusalem where the Hinnom Valley meets the Kidron Valley. If you're into geography, it's the area where Judas hung himself, a lot of bad stuff happened there. But the shrine itself was just a very simple stone pit, big, big white stone pit that would be stacked with wood. It would be ignited, stoked hot, and into which helpless children were thrown in alive. That was one of the prerequisites. They had to be alive. Many, many, many children. We don't know how long he worshipped Moloch. It had to be multiple years. Untold children. Remember, this guy reigned for 55 years. In fact, so many child sacrifices were done there that the word topheth ceased to mean drum. It became literally a a proper noun that meant the place of child sacrifice. It's kind of like the terms 9-11 for us don't, are not two random numbers. But when you see 9-11, you think of, oh, Manhattan, you think 2001, you think of the atrocities that happened there. Topheth became known as the place of child sacrifice. That's what that word means. So awful, guys, were the memories associated with this place that from the abbreviated, abbreviated Hebrew form of Valley of Hinnom, Gehinnom, came the Greek word transliteration, really, Gehenna, which the New Testament uses to describe what? Hell. Hell on earth. That was Topheth. And it was there, at any rate, that this evil man took some of his own flesh and blood, some of his own babies, and threw him in alive into the fire. It gets worse. Manasseh, Further compounded his sin by abandoning himself to the occult. Look at, uh, if you have your Bible, look at verse 6. And he practiced witchcraft and used divination and dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And as a result of this progressive abandonment of any morals whatsoever, he eventually himself just became a bloody mass murderer verse 16 moreover Manasseh shed very much innocent blood until he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another that's pretty bad Um, in fact he was also responsible for murdering Isaiah the prophet and the Talmud tells us that he had Isaiah stretched out alive and sawn in two with a wooden saw You know, God had dispossessed the nations of Canaan, the Canaanites, because of their sin. It says that their sin rose up like a stench in his nostrils. And God said, enough of them. I'm going to wipe them out, push them out, bring in the Jews. But Manasseh not only repeated the offenses of the Canaanites, he brought all of Judah to do the same. And even worse they outdid the sins of the Canaanites. Not just in responsibility because they had the Torah, but in degree. They outsinned the sinners. And that's exactly what we find said, stated in verse 9. But they, the people, Manasseh, his court, did not listen. They did not listen to God's word. They did not listen to the prophets. They did not, did not listen to conscientious preachers. They didn't listen. And when people don't listen to the law, to God's word, the results are predictable. What happens? They become seduced by the spirit of the age. But they did not listen, and Manasseh seduced them to do evil more, that's the operative word, than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. Guys, this is a very dark and a very sad chapter in the history of Israel. And yet, it is against this backdrop of this incredible evil, this high handed rebellion against a good and gracious God, that we find chapters 40 through 66 written. That we find Isaiah 55, 6, and 7, and this tender invitation by God pleading with his people to repent and to come to the place of. Forgiveness and blessing. Isn't that amazing? Look at, if you aren't there already, 55, Isaiah 55, 6 and 7, verse verse 6. You see the, the amazing urgency of this call. It says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. The term seek here means to seek with care. It means to earnestly seek the Lord. This is, a, I don't know if you remember that uh, bumper sticker that made its way around years ago, but it was simply, try God. Like, you know, try him if you don't like him. You can take him back. It's like a return policy at Costco. You know, God is a sampler platter. He's an hors d'oeuvre. Try it. If it doesn't work out, no, no problem. That's not the seeker God is looking for. He is looking for someone who is earnestly seeking him. That's why we have the repetition of the term while. Notice that. While he may be found, while he is near. This little word, while, tells us a very important truth. It tells us that there's a temporal aspect to the compassion, the grace, the forgiveness of God, the love of God that he gives to all the world. There's a temporal aspect because if you follow this thought to its logical conclusion, there's a time coming when God will not be found because he will not be near. And that's troubling, isn't it? It's sobering. And we as creatures, especially unbelievers, have such a distorted view of time. We act, we behave, we think as if things will go on as they are forever. We suffer from what one man has called the illusion of permanence. You know, man rarely stops to think realistically. You you meet a guy on the street, you you meet a guy on an airplane, you, you talk to them, and they don't think realistically about length of days, about death, about heaven about hell about judgment and if he, a man or a woman uh, thinks about God at all they usually create a god by their own imagination they create a a, a really benevolent god a grandfather of a god they create a <clears throat> a female god or a great white light or a energy And they assume that the God that they create, whoever God is, will be there at the end to make everything all right. You just kind of, like in the movies, you know, you just go into the great white light, there's grandma, you wave hello to everybody, and they're saying, come, come, try the food, it's really good here. And that's it. And even if the God of the Bible were true, they think, and they postulate, that at the end... You know, he's just going to wink at my sin because I'm not that bad of a person. And he will be there at the end to comfort me and to help me and to give me joy. That's not true. That's not true. The God that is spoken of here who wrote this text says, seek me while I may be found because I will not always be found. I remember a few years ago I was... uh, flipping through the television channels, and I landed on the religious channel, not my favorite, and, but there was a good guy preaching. His name is E.V. Hill, Pastor E.V. Hill. Maybe some of you have heard of him. He was uh, the great pastor of Mount Zion Baptist Church in South Central LA, and he did a lot of great work there preaching the gospel, a lot of outreach to his people there, and just wonderful ministry. I always enjoyed him, he was a brilliant orator, and, uh, he was preaching a sermon that caught my attention. You know, if you can grab somebody with a sermon title right away, I'm not very good at that. He was. But the title of his message was, You Can Go to Hell. And I thought, this, I gotta hear, you know. It, it sounds a little bit provocative, and E.B. Hill could get away from that stuff. But he started every point with, I don't want to go to hell. You can go to hell I don't want to go to hell because hell is, and then he would give a characteristic of hell. And quite honestly, I don't remember the rest of his message because I was so enraptured with that first point that chilled me to the bone. And his first point was simply this. I don't want to go to hell. Actually, he would say it a lot more passionately than I would. Go, hell! I don't want to go to hell. Oh, he's so good he said, I don't want to go to hell. And then he said this, because hell is a place where there is no love of God. Imagine that. It's unimaginable. And someone will say, well, of course hell will not be filled with, with God's love because his love is reserved for his children both in this life and in the next. No, no, no. His general love and grace is poured out on all mankind continuously. We live in it. We breathe in it. Appetite to eat is an expression of the love and grace of God. Food to eat. The amazing penelope of of flavors that we can enjoy and textures in food. That's, you know, the the welcome smile of a friend during a time of distress, the laughter of children, hope, work to do, that's all part of the grace and love of God that he gives to all mankind. You know what? Those who hate God are enjoying the rain just like we are. But imagine a place where one will never experience the smile of a loved one. A place where no one will greet you and comfort you where you will never be able where one will never be able to have a cup of cold water when thirsty a place where there is no laughter of children a place with no joy no comfort, no purpose in that day, and that day is coming, God will not be found because he will not be near And so that's why we have the urgency of the call. Call upon him while he is near. The term call, the the noun form can be rendered outcry. And when it is used with the word God as it is here, it is an outcry that flows out of a critical and chronic need. This is someone who recognizes the desperateness of their situation and calls out to God with all their heart. And for the person who does that, the person who has at the bottom... And it's dark and dank and lonely down there. And they're overwhelmed and there's no deliverance in sight. The person who recognizes that and calls out to God the good news, and this is good news, the good news is that he, God, is what? Near. That's the promise. To the desperate, he is near. And this is a beautiful term, guys. It's it's translated in other places as relative. Kinsman, one who dwells beside. And the idea here is that God's not just close in proximity or in a passive sense, but he's near and ready, poised for action, ready to jump into our circumstances if we call upon him with a whole heart. What does that whole heart look like? It looks like repentance. Verse 7, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord. The The way the words and the grammar interplay with one another here. Repentance is simply this, it is to turn away from the evil, to recognize it for what it is, that's sin, that's evil, I hate it, and to turn towards the good, in this case the good being God himself. And when a person does that, when a penitent sinner looks to God and cries out, something wonderful happens something that really almost defies human language. It says this, and he, God, will have compassion on him. That's the promise. He is near and ready to exercise compassion. Compassion, rahem in Hebrew, describes the deep and tender love of God towards a penitent sinner. And it's a very, very tender word. In fact, Isaiah uses it In chapter 49, verse 15, to speak of a nursing mother's tender love for a little infant. And in the realm of human experience, you can't get more tender than that, right? This is the word that is used throughout the Old Testament to describe the feelings of mercy that are most easily prompted by the sight of helpless children or helpless people or the aged. When your heart wells up with compassion, You've experienced that. I remember experiencing this in a very weird way because I I, I experienced it through a medium I don't usually uh, you know get moved by. But I was home alone, Val was away, the kids were younger and uh, I was watching a news magazine and I was deeply, deeply moved to tears by a segment that I watched and this is not like me because I'm not easily moved by the media. I know it's manipulated, Uh, I know they're, you know, I'm moved, by the way, by lots of stuff. I'm moved by the scripture, I'm moved by singing, I'm moved by worship, I'm moved by art, I'm moved by nature, I'm moved by children. I'm not a stoic, but I know that the media is pretty much, you know, they want to pummel me from pillar to post without having me think. They want to get to my emotions and not bypass my brain. So I know the jig is up. And... This, from time to time, by the way, has caused a little tension, marital tension with my wife because she and I are a little bit different in this area. I'm more cynical. We'll be watching a schmaltzy movie or a schmaltzy show, and Val will be there wiping her eyes with her, you know, and when she was pregnant with the kids, she, (laughs) she would get weepy watching the Weather Channel, you know. It was... The Great Basin is so dry. <sighs> Don't you love her dress? But sometimes we'll be watching something very moving on television, and I'll turn to her and I'll say, Honey, that guy's not dead. That's not a hospital set, and the other guy's not a doctor. He's just an extra. In fact, he's going to get up and have lunch. In fact, he did get up and have lunch, and they paid him a lot of money so that he could manipulate your emotions, and then you would sit tight through the commercial, and they would sell you Dr. Schultz foot pads. <laughs> she hates it when I do that. I almost lost my life once when we were watching Shadowlands, which is a great story of C.S. Lewis and his, his, the, the love story when he met this great Christian Jewish gal, and, and they fell in love late in life, and uh, spoiler alert, she dies, okay? And it was Deborah Winger and um, Anthony Hopkins. Uh, it was a great movie, the book is better. But there's a point there where she's dying, and C.S. Lewis is, you know, just weeping over her. And I, my brother was weeping, he was there with us. Valerie was weeping. I said, Guys, things are getting out of control here. I said, That's Deborah Winger, Urban Cowboy Deborah Winger. And I said, that's Anthony Hopkins, and he actually won an Academy Award for playing Hannibal Lecter, who is a person who eats people. C.S. <laughs> Lewis may not have been perfect, but he never ate anybody that I knew of. It was, anyway, it was, it's created some tension. But this that's why I was so surprised by my response to this show. They, they were doing a segment on Romanian orphans with AIDS. And the images were just absolutely shocking, because when you think of children, you think of laughter, you think of joy, you think of playing and fun, and just, it's so sweet. We love children. But here were these children in paint-chip metal cages. They, they weren't really cribs. And most of them resembled children only in size, because they were, by and large, just a mass of skin and bones laying lifelessly, in horrible pain, just waiting for death. And those that could move, that had enough energy to move, would teeter back and forth in a mock rocking because they had no one to hold them. And so they would rock themselves. Guys, when I saw that, I just began to bawl like a baby. I began to sob. In essence, compassion, Rahem, is a result of an event or a sight that evokes an emotion so strong, so overpowering, that it literally moves us, perhaps even to tears. So, what is the text trying to teach us here? It's telling us this. This is so important. It's telling us that if a person, a man or a woman, forsakes their sin, and turns to God, God is moved. And he extends his care and love towards that penitent person in the same way a nursing mother would turn to her crying infant to feed it. There's no hesitation there. Only complete abandonment to the welfare of the needy. That's God. And God's compassion far exceeds mine, or yours. Because I, I really, what I felt that night was more pity than compassion. Because I didn't adopt a child, I didn't send money to any place, I didn't s- search it out. I just felt very moved. When God is moved, you know what it express, what He expresses? Comprehensive forgiveness. And to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. This is the pardon that only God can give. Do you realize this is very interesting? This is the one of the few verbs in the entire Old Testament that is used exclusively of God. It is never used in any way, shape or form to discuss men forgiving one another. You say, why? Because only God can forgive so utterly. It is as though God is telling the penitent person, look, I stand ready to forgive you But I want you to abandon any notion of what it means to be forgiven by men because men forgive imperfectly, reluctantly. They hold grudges. I forgive utterly, completely to all who will come. That's the difference. And maybe you're sitting there and you said, but Marcelo, I've I've had an abortion. Or I was employed by this industry for years. Or, yeah, but Marcelo, you don't understand. I've done this, whatever that is. Could God really be moved with compassion towards me and forgive me? And the answer to that is a sturdy absolutely. See, how do you know? Based on the authority of scripture, the verses that we have just read. But let me give you one example. A biblical example. Remember King Manasseh? I mean, it's hard to find a guy that would be as evil as this guy even today. And that's saying a lot, right? This guy was an idolater. He was an occultist. He was a mass murderer. And a man with no natural affection because he went so far as to kill his own children. Even the bad guys love their babies, right? This guy was bad. And all of this behavior... In spite of every conceivable advantage. Because you see, he came from a godly dad. He had a godly father. One of the godliest kings ever in the history of Judah. He had a godly dad. He knew the Torah. He was raised with a Bible in hand. Say, how do you know that? I know that because of Deuteronomy 17, 18 through 20. God prophesied through Moses in Deuteronomy, way back in the giving of the law, someday you're going to have a king. And when you have a a monarch, a line of kings, he is to be a scholar king. Not just any kind of scholar, but a biblical scholar. In fact, he is to write out a copy of the law of Moses by his own hand. And he is to do it under the tutelage of a priest so that he can understand what he's writing and make sure he doesn't make any mistakes. And Hezekiah, loving his son Manasseh, he was the next in line to take the throne. You can bet that he had the brightest and the best tutor him. He knew the Bible. He also saw the nation prosper through obedience. He saw his father's reign And he saw what God's people could be when they loved God first and most. And yet after all that, he still snubbed God's grace all of his life. That's the general upshot of his life. Now let me give you the closing chapter, okay? Just read four verses from 2 Chronicles 33, 10 through 13. You don't have to turn there if you want to go ahead, but I'll read them. 2 Chronicles 33, 10 through 13. This is the last chapter of Manasseh's life. Verse 10. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. Isn't, that, isn't God gracious that he would speak to these people? They paid no attention to Isaiah. They paid no attention to the prophets. As we said, to God's word. Who are you, Isaiah? No doubt Manasseh would tell him. Who are you to tell me what to do? Who's king here? I'm a religious person. I know the Bible. I have my rights. Who are you to impose your narrow interpretation of the Torah on me? I'm king. He paid no attention, so God had to judge him. Verse 11, Therefore the Lord brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them, and they captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze chains, and took him to Babylon. The Assyrians got wind of a rebellion in Jerusalem. They sent their military people, put a kibosh on it, and then arrested Manasseh to make an example of him. It's a hard thing to fall into the hands of the Assyrians, kind of like ISIS. These guys weren't the champion of human rights, okay? And we're just getting the upshot of what they did to him. They would reduce these people to a subhuman level. They would finally bind their hands and their feet with bronze chains so they could barely shuffle along, and they would put hooks in their nose, bronze hooks, and parade them around like, look at our trophy. Aren't we the military prowess people? Look, look at this monarch. He's reduced to a subhuman level. That's what they did with Manasseh. Now, what was Manasseh's response when he was brought so low? Verse 12. And when he, Manasseh, was in distress. Let me translate that for you. When Manasseh was at the bottom when he could look nowhere but up, when he had no power or ability to deliver himself, when he was despairing of life, what did he do? Listen, he entreated the Lord his God. You know what that means? He prayed. He cried out to God in his desperation from the bottom of that pit. And humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. You know what? He repented. Right there. All he could do was say, God, in my heart, I repent. He repented. Now let me ask you a quick question here. Because this is very important. in this place in my own heart. Would you have compassion on this man? Put yourself in the shoes of a righteous Jew of his day. Maybe you had seen the nation prosper through obedience. And you had seen the nation strong, you know, militarily, economically, spiritually. Only to see the vitality of this people, this amazing people squandered by this self-serving hedonist. This, as we said, spiritual pagan. Would you have compassion on would you have compassion on them if you, maybe you had seen little babies stolen from their mother's arms and you knew what their end would be because you could smell the stench of their flesh burning that night. You could hear those drums, you knew what those meant. Maybe you were a friend and a disciple of Isaiah the prophet. You, he mentored you or you identified with his message only to see this man of God killed, murdered in a way you wouldn't kill a wounded animal. Would you have compassion on? I'll tell you what my natural response would be. Good riddance. Shake my sandals at you, pal. Oh, you're sorry. Well, isn't that special? You're special. You sow to the wind. You reap a whirlwind. I hope your captivity is long and painful. That would be, guys... My small minded, small hearted response. What was God's response? What is our blueprint? Verse 13. And let me just re- replace the pronouns with the appropriate names here. When Manasseh prayed to God, God, listen, was moved. He was moved by Manasseh's entreaty and heard his supplication and restored him again to Jerusalem, to his kingdom, then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. That's our God. And that's, guys, what we need to understand. That's God's compassion and forgiveness towards us. And it's made possible by the blood and cross of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament saints looked to God to provide a deliverer and we know now that was the cross we now look back in faith like they look forward in faith and understand that it's the substitutionary work of Christ on the cross that removes our guilt but that is our experience and what we own now I'm going to just briefly read a verse and say a couple more things while the worship team comes up if you would for the Lord's table um, it's all the work of Jesus, okay? This is a verse you've heard me speak of before, which I love, and it's 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is what made, make, makes God able to move in compassion toward us and forgive us. It reads like this. Let me just read it and then just unfold it for a second. He made him, God the Father made Jesus his son, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, non peccari. That means he was not able to sin. He was impeccable. He was unacquainted with sin experientially. God made Jesus to be sin. He recorded, accounted to Jesus Christ all of our sins, the sins that we were accursed for, he took upon himself and became accursed for us. Galatians 3:16. So that at the cross, guys, Jesus, listen, became the embodiment of evil. He became all that God could not endure. And he was accorded our sin. He bore it in God's wrath. So that, why? Why was he a substitute? So that God might impute or record or accord to our account the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that we might become the embodiment of righteousness. And this is a... you got to understand, this is because of our union with Christ, and this is absolutely the removal of sin, but it's also the addition of righteousness. I, I think sometimes we have a little bit of a difficult time understanding god's forgiveness we think of like how we forgive each other right yeah i forgive you but i have a memory god when he forgives it's like he just removes it and adds righteousness adds righteousness it's kind of like when you you know most of you who moved to this valley at some point had new carpet some of us were not smart enough and we did like really light carpet like Pearl White or Off-White. And remember, you were paranoid with your kids. It's like, no, 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 no food over the carpet. No drinks over the carpet. In fact, you can't live here. (laughs) Nobody walk on the carpet. Just look at it. You can look at it hard. Just, Just leave it alone, kids. And then you have that Super Bowl party, and some guy accidentally spills a whole bowl of bean dip on your gorgeous carpet. And you go over and you pretend like it ain't no big deal. Yeah. And you clean it up and, and you go to Google and you do all that voodoo that they tell you to do to clean stuff up. Like you, know, you just got to sacrifice a chicken and yeah. I forget. And you get it all and you stay together. See, see, it's all gone. Don't worry about it. Just don't come here again. <laughs> but every time when it dries, every time you walk by, you see that residual mark of the bean dip. That's how we think God deals with sin. He gets it. He gets all the real grimy stuff up, off. Kind of. He gets most of it. And he forgives like we do. We always remember the residual dip. Right? What God does is he removes the carpet. He hammers out the cement and he lays a new had, and then he puts on new carpet so that there is no connection between that spot and what was there previously. Nothing. Jesus, God through Jesus, doesn't simply take away our sin, but he gives us his son's righteousness. That's what makes his compassion and his forgiveness possible. It's the work of Christ on the cross for us. And that's what we remember, guys, when we come to the Lord's table. We remember his death his body that was broken for us and his blood that was shed for our remission of sins. And as you take this, and again, the bread is gluten-free, so don't worry about it. If you've got issues with that, please partake. But thank God for the work of Jesus that has made this amazing compassion and forgiveness possible, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time around your word. Pray that you bless your table to our edification. Lord, may our hearts just ring back with thanksgiving and praise to you. In Jesus' name.